And so as you move from the old to the new, you move from imitation to participation. So the earthly liturgy now is a share in. We worship with the angels and saints. And so it's not a giving way of priesthood, liturgy, sacrifice, temple. It's going from the earthly to the heavenly. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Every Knee Shall Bow, your seasonal Catholic podcast on evangelization and discipleship. My name is Mike Gomer Gormley, and I am not joined today by Dave Van Vickle. Uh, unfortunately, Dave, every single time for the past four weeks when we have tried to get together and schedule recordings and shows and interviews, his wife has had uh, to do doctor's appointments all, literally all over the country. I think he, right now he's in Nashville. And uh, so keep Dave and Amber in your prayers. Also keep Dave's mom in your prayers because I learned while I was in the Holy Land that his mom got diagnosed with cancer as well. So his wife and his mom. So please, please, please keep the whole Van Vickle clan in your prayers. But today uh, we are very lucky. We get to interview Dr. Andrew Swafford, doctor who is a full professor of theology at Benedictine College. Uh, I have known Dr. <laughs> Swafford since he was a I think you were you were an undergrad. When you came in to take that intensive ancient Greek class, yeah, that's right. and I should have failed it, and I think he lost, I think he lost my midterm, so uh, he just gave me all the credit for it, and then uh, yeah, so I got an oh. A minus in the class. Definitely should have that's failed. That's not true. Definitely no, should have failed. How you doing, Doctor Swafford? Oh, it's that's great. <laughs> oh to be no, with no, you. no, no. I literally sat in the middle of the. <laughs> I sat in the middle of the five of us so that I would have, when we would do our homework in the morning, right? You had to go through those sentence translations. I would have two people as a buffer on either side so I could frantically try to figure this stuff out. I was terrible. I was terrible. Anywho, so how you doing? How you that doing? was an intense class, man. What was it like? 10 weeks yeah. or eight weeks of summer intensive Greek we did together? Good yeah. times. Yeah. And the thing that ticked me off about it, the thing that ticked me off about it, because number one, I was terrible. But it was a 10-week class. Five weeks was supposed to represent your first year of, of a language. And then the next five weeks was supposed to represent the second year. So I would get my two years of foreign language requirement all in one summer. But what he did was he went fast for the second semester. We finished that in two and a half weeks. And then we started translating Plato's Credo and the Book of James. Yeah. And I was like, well, there is no help. <laughs> There's no hope of me catching up now. It was always <laughs> lost. Always lost. What are you up to now uh, at Benedictine? You, you doing any uh, fun classes? Uh, you know, you got stuff going on. What, what, what's the haps? Yeah, you know, I I, uh, I developed about six years ago a class on JP2. Uh, so that's been a lot of fun to teach on Jean Paul II. And, uh, you know, all of our students, they, they, they all think highly of him. And I always begin this way. I'm like, you know, I think you all think highly of St. Jean Paul II. But I don't think you know the man. I don't think you know his human story. And it's true. I mean, they, they've heard about him, but to kind of really dig into his bio. Um, so we will read Witness to Hope yeah. and, and uh, we'll read Love and Responsibility. And they just it's been fun to see them kind of get to know the story. Uh, communism, you know, they were I mean, they were young, yeah. very, very young when he died, let alone when communism fell. So that, that's been fun to kind of continue to tell that story. Uh, I teach Christian moral life. Uh, I teach various uh, Bible classes, uh, Pentateuch, prophets, gospels. So that, that's kind of. I'm teaching Hebrew as well. Teaching Hebrew right now. That's kind of what keeps uh, keeps me busy. That and that and my five kiddos, man. And oh, I got two teenagers, and they're uh, they're rocking my world. We we started jujitsu about a couple <laughs> years ago, and uh, man, my oldest son he got me twice this summer. Uh, he caught me in a 
Caught me in a triangle, caught me in an arm bar. I was really proud of him. I know, man. I'm like, yeah, I'm on the way down. You're on the way up. (laughs) (laughs) You must decrease. He must increase. Oh, that's that's fun. Yeah. So one of the reasons why we wanted to have you on the show today is to talk about your upcoming book that you're co-authoring with Jeff Cavins called A Catholic Guide to the Old Testament. And I think this is so important. Number one, everyone knows Jeff Cavins who does anything with Ascension. I mean, the Bible timeline and all of his courses that he had on, you know, Matthew and Acts and all this stuff. My church is like a flagship parish for all of the great adventure scripture study stuff. And, um, you know, we're, we're, we're fanatics for it because Jeff made it so easy to navigate sacred scripture with the 14 historical periods and being able to go through it. But um, one of the great things that you guys are doing is doing a deep dive into the Old Testament. And I can tell you the difficulty that I find with even Catholics that have studied the Old Testament, they don't understand how they relate to the old, to the new. And um, so I find a lot of Catholics, even after doing Bible study, will say things like, I just don't know about this God of the Old Testament. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? So I'm very happy that you're teaching, <laughs> that you're writing this book and all the stuff that you're doing. So why is it important for Catholics to know the Old Testament? Oh, goodness, goodness, goodness. You're right. There, there's that crypto kind of Marcion, Marcionite in all of us. Uh, it just it just never can, never really goes away where, you know, this God of the old versus God of the new. And I think uh, we can hit this in a couple of different angles. But um, one of the things that is really impacted Biblical scholarship in the last 30, 40 years is this insistence on putting Jesus in his Jewish context, putting Paul in their Jewish context and kind of appreciating that. And, and let me maybe just kind of give a kind of a, an indirect answer. But, you know, 19th century scholarship and you kind of still hear this in the air that Jesus was spiritual and not religious. Jesus was, you know, anti-priestly, anti-sacramental, anti-liturgy, anti-temple, anti-da-da-da. And all of that really is kind of a, I mean, there is a crypto anti-Semitism in there. And and really the more scholars, even non-Catholic scholars have recovered the Jewishness of Jesus, the more at home we see that the priestly Jesus, the liturgical Jesus, the sacramental Jesus, the religious Jesus, that, that this kind of Catholic Catholic sacramental fulfillment of, of the entire Bible is not like an add-on to the Bible, but is actually the organic uh, fulfillment from its inner heart. And so I think, you know, diving into the Old Testament helps us to appreciate uh, the continuity of the story. Another kind of, you know, indirect answer I'll give to you is St. Paul refers to, he says in Galatians 3, 8, that the, quote, gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham. The gospel. And that the way Paul views the new covenant isn't simply what happened after Jesus or after the Old Testament. Uh, rather, the new covenant is rooted in the old as it's flowering, as its fulfillment. And so there really is a sorting through as to what is the part of the old that dies in Christ and what is it that is actually fulfilled in Christ that was the plan from the beginning. And so to really see this deep continuity within the whole Bible, from the old to the new. Um, and, and I think just having the right interpretive lens is, is the key, to, to see the, the movement from the old to the new, from the earthly to the heavenly, from nature to grace. You, you don't see that if you just skip the Old Testament, and you'll never fully appreciate Jesus until you see him as bringing about the fulfillment and culmination of this great story that has gone on since the beginning of time. Yeah. Oh, that is so awesome. And one of the reasons why, you know, sometimes we'll get some pushback from people like, why are you having this author on the show? And it's like, because we're a show about evangelization and discipleship. And if you don't know who Christ is, uh, you can't disciple and evangelize anyone. But also, if you don't understand what Jesus was doing 
you're not going to understand the great drama of salvation history. And Bishop Barron has a great line where he says, um, you cannot understand Jesus if you do not understand Israel. And the more I study, the more I read works on, you know, interpretations of the New Testament from people like Brant Petrie and Scott Hahn and whatnot, the more you recover, like one of my favorite books right now is Paul, a new covenant Jew. And I'm loving this book, but uh, it really was N.T. Wright. And I know you've studied N.T. Wright and whatnot that um, he has this great line in, in one of his books where he talks about that Jesus is first and foremost the revelation, the fullness of the revelation of Yahweh to Israel, right? So that's the divine disclosure, the divine self-revealing. He goes, but then Jesus is also in the humanity that he assumed the fullest fulfillment of Israel's vocation in response to faithfulness to God. And so you have this humanity and divinity both on mission, accomplishing uh, two sides basically of the same coin. And if we don't understand what he was doing in the Old Testament, we're not going to understand his mission at all, right? Uh, no, totally, totally. And I think one thing that helps people too is to think of when you, there's two great stories in the Bible, the story of humanity and the story of Israel. And Israel's story always embodies humanity's story. So when you, when you read about Israel's struggles, like this is not like, I think one thing people have to do, I encourage my students to do is on the one hand, we want to like read it in context, but we also want to see the entire story of Israel as a mirror to our own life. Right. The whole drama of the Exodus is sort of the paradigm of salvation. That's why we go back to these texts every Lent, right? Because we're going back out into the wilderness. We're coming through the new Exodus and we're headed to the new promised land. And, and what sustains us there is the new manna. So, yeah, all these ways, and this is how the church has always read the Bible. And, and maybe to kind of pick up on what you were saying, I mean, just one passage that we all know, if we pray the angels, we know it. The word became flesh and dwells among us, right? John 1.14. That word dwelt is skenao. That it literally means to like tabernacle, right? And so we can just look at this as sort of, uh, obviously it's the incarnation, it's the word of God become flesh, it's the, the eternal son. But it's important not to just look at this in terms of like Greek categories, philosophical categories. This, this is speaking of Jesus as the new and living right. temple, the dwelling place of God. And that's where right's coming from. And so if we don't understand what the temple was to ancient Israel, we won't feel the full impact of things like when Jesus says, you know, greater than the temple is here. It's like, are you kidding me? And it's like, yeah, you bet. Nothing's greater than the temple than God himself. And that's exactly there, our Lord's point. But we won't, we won't feel that. Like when I teach gospels, I'll often say, you know, let, let's, let's pay attention to how Jesus' words and actions tap into and transcend the expectations of his day from his Jewish context, Jewish backdrop. We never want to bury Jesus in his own time, but when we have a sense for the context, yeah. for the expectations, for the hopes, his words pop all the louder. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. And to understand the Catholic Church, one of the big things that I do here in my parish is I have a, a form of the RCIA called inclusion, and inclusion is for well-formed Protestants who want to become Catholic. Mm. And so you, we dispense with all of the stuff that, that you do for the unbaptized and all this. And um, we dive straight into the issues that divide us and understanding where the Catholic church comes from. For many people here in, in the Houston, Texas area, they're more Baptist, non-liturgical, non-sacramental um, denominations, non-denominationalism, whatever. And one of the big things that they see when they look at the Catholic church is they see all these accretions 
all these things, you know, when Catholicism took, yeah, maybe it was the right faith in the beginning, but then it started adapting Greek philosophy and then it started adapting Roman uh, jurisprudence and civil society. And they just kind of graphed these things, you know, basilicas used to be Roman uh, judicial houses and it just became Roman. And then it became all this medieval stuff. You get all these medieval things and hyper sacramentalism. Right. And when I sit down with them and they just say things like, where is this? in the new testament where is this an axe that's usually what it comes down to my, my favorite thing that uh when i started listening to a tons of protestant preachers almost all non-denominational uh church starters will say the same thing like i started reading the book of acts and i was so convicted i was like why does my church not look anything like this church so i went and uh you know it started my own church so it's more like the book of acts and i i started reading it's like it's it's amazing how you can read with blinders on because you find that you know where is this in the new testament it's there in the temple that they were still going to, right? They would go to the temple every day. They would go to people's houses, yeah. right? It wasn't just, you know, a, it, it was a Jewish thing that became the Christian thing. And uh, like, like you know, branches grafted onto the olive tree. And so yep. when you start to see the Jewishness of Jesus, you start to see the Jewishness of Catholicism, at least in, you know, like, you know, as the, the seed to the, the oak tree kind of thing, the acorn to the oak tree. And it's like, oh, well, this, this makes sense. Jesus had 12 apostles because of the 12 tribes. Jesus had the 70 or 72. That was a direct mosaic thing. Jesus goes up a mountain to give the new law. Like all these things start paralleling. And if you don't know it, you might be like, yeah, it was just invented in like the 1200s by St. Thomas Aquinas. And you're like, well, right. okay, right. You're, you're detaching yourself from the Old Testament worldview. You're so, so right. And this is where, I mean, this is where we're hitting on. I mean, the more you recover the Jewish Jesus, the more you see that the Jewish Jesus is the Catholic Jesus. Oh, yeah. That's a great way to put it. That's a great way to put it. So I just got back from the Holy Land. I'll tell you, when you were talking about um, like the New Testament and, and the temple, you got to understand the relationship of how significant the temple was. The day we got to Jerusalem, which was halfway through our trip, I got violently ill. And uh, I had to go. uh, It was just me in the bathroom of the hotel. We became best friends. It was awful. So everyone's taking these bus trips. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone's taking these bus trips and they're going all over the place. And I was just in the hotel drinking Gatorade, trying not to pass out. And I I had like bizarre fever dreams and I was dehydrated. It was kind of funny. But um, one day I was restless. So I threw a bunch of Gatorades in my backpack and I went to a hike to Gethsemane. And I spent hours there praying for my wife and praying for different things. And then I went up to uh, the top of the hill where the Jewish graveyard is. And there's a church called Dominus Flavit. And up there, there is a big, huge window behind the altar. The altar says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, would that I could gather you like a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not let me. And then you look above the altar, you see the window and all of Jerusalem is in this window, the old city. And then right there, there's this great, um, they don't have stained glass windows, so it's like a grate over it. And there's a Eucharist, a chalice with the host. And I held my phone up so the camera would be parallel with the host. And right through the circle of the Eucharist is the Temple Mount. And I thought, like, how brilliant a perspective of the artist to connect the temple with the body of Jesus Christ with the Eucharist and the seamless garment that it's meant to represent. It's just so, it's so amazing. But if you don't know this stuff, then you're losing even the sacramental life of us as daily Catholics. Oh man, that is so beautiful to hear you say this. I'm so sorry you were, you were ill there, but like you're, that church is so gorgeous. That view is breathtaking. And, and you know, like when the, when the Lord, when our Lord dies and the veil in the temple tears, 
um, as, 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 as you know, I know, you know, you and I love that idea that that RCA program for for like well-formed non-Catholic Christians. I, I, that's man, kudos to you. That's awesome. You know, a lot of our non-Catholic friends will interpret the veil tearing as, as sort of signaling the end of priesthood, the end of temple, the end of liturgy, the end of yeah. sacrifice, uh, and sort of signaling that, the, the, you know, I mean, in the Holy of Holies, God's presence dwells and only the high priest can go in there and only once a year on the day of Atom on Yom Kippur, the, the veil tears that divides that. And so the unleashing of God's presence to the world. And that's all true. That's all exactly right. But what, the way I would frame it is it's not the end of priesthood, end of liturgy, end of temple. It's the giving way of the earthly and the ushering of the heavenly temple, the heavenly priesthood, the heavenly liturgy. Uh, you know, one of my favorite passages in Hebrews 10, 19 and 20, where you have you have the author saying, we, we have this parousia, this boldness, this confidence to enter into through the, the new veil, which is the, it's the same word as the curtain that, felt that, that was torn at Jesus' death, which is the flesh of Jesus Christ, that the Eucharist becomes the veil through which we enter into the heavenly holy of holies. And so, uh, you know, and you think about our Lord's actions in the, in the temple, the tables, and, and that's really kind of a prophetic acting out of the coming destruction of the temple. But as even like Rabbi Neusner, a Jewish scholar, has seen, like that's got to be paired as the negative with the Last Supper as the positive. So the giving way of the earthly temple and the ushering of the heavenly temple, which is the blessed sacrament. It's not a giving way of priesthood, of liturgy. It's the end of the earthly, the ushering of the heavenly. And in the Old Testament, the the temple, the worship, the liturgy was an imitation in their minds of what was going on in heaven. Moses is told to build the tabernacle according to the, quote, pattern that is being shown to him. Something similar said to David in 1 Chronicles 28 about the temple, that it's, it's based on this heavenly arch, archetype, this heavenly temple. And, and so as you move from the old to the new, you move from imitation to, in the new, participation. So the earthly liturgy now is a share in. We worship with the angels and saints. And so you see this moving from the old to the new, from the earthly to the heavenly. It's not a giving way of priesthood, liturgy, sacrifice, temple. It's going from the earthly to the heavenly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And the beautiful movement, if we don't have eyes to see, we don't see the great gifts that we have. And uh, it, it reminds me of how the liturgy incorporates and participates in the our earthly liturgy participates in the heavenly liturgy in such a beautiful way, because uh, every so often I'll go to an ordinary parish here in my um, in my hometown. And in the ordinary liturgy, right before they begin the or at the beginning of the liturgy, of the Eucharist, the priest says, Christ, our Passover has been sacrificed. And then everyone responds. Therefore, let us keep the feast. And understanding the connection of these two. So I'm driving to mass with my kids. And I said, Christ, our Passover has been sacrificed. What did we respond? And they, they are like, therefore, let us keep the feast. And I said, okay, what does that mean? What is the Passover? And my eight-year-old son is just sitting there rattling off the, the thing of the, oh, that's where the, the Israelites all get together and they sell them when they were slaves in Egypt and they slaughter the lamb and they don't break its bones and they spread the blood. And I go, okay, well, how is Jesus a Passover lamb? And he just sits there and he's like, well, well, like, I don't know, like, well, if he's the lamb, he's the male lamb and they didn't break any of his bones and he gave us all of his blood and and then, like, doesn't the blood cleanse us from sin? And he's just rattling this off from, you know, a little bit of sack prep. Obviously, we do theology and stuff. But the biggest thing for him was the liturgy, how the liturgy was building the bridge. Yes, I did the catechesis, but it was building the bridge between the Passover of the Jews, which was a liturgical feast 
that Christ used for the for the um, first communion, and then to how we go to this bizarre you know thing called the ordinary at liturgy, how it all made this like. It, it put a bow and he's just sitting there like, oh yeah. And then there's this and then there's this and his, <laughs> yeah, it's just amazing. It's such a perfect opportunity. Now, now these are Gomer's kids, so we're not surprised at all. Right. <laughs> but no, but, but you're, you're so right. I mean, this, it's so beautiful to hear you say that. And, and the liturgy, it's a teacher. And the, the thing is the sacrament. I mean, so I, I did a master's degree in Old Testament Semitic languages at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And I was the only Catholic in the program. They coined me, uh, they nicknamed me Catholic Andy. I lived in the dorms with all these guys. And I've got, I've got one really good friend from that time. And um, he has actually since become Catholic. He went off to England, did or, uh, in Scotland, I'm sorry, did a doctorate at Aberdeen uh, on John Webster. And you, you know, it's one of these examples where sometimes, you know, we went round and round hours and hours and hours of conversation. His name's Dr. James Merrick. And, you know, we, we kind of lost touch for about five years. I'm like, man, I just didn't say the right thing. Da, 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 da. And, you know, sometimes you think you nail it and the Holy Spirit humbles you. And sometimes you think you just screwed up yeah. and the Lord just surprises you. And so all these years later, he's like, you know, all those conversations we had, all those books you gave me, et cetera, it really had a profound impact. And, uh, in 2017, he brought his whole family to the church. When he did so, he lost his minister's visa. He was an Anglican priest at the time. And uh, yeah, now he's back wow. in the States. And he's just, um, he's actually now working for the Abbey here, Benedict. And uh, I mean, he's just, just an awesome dude. But uh, I remember having so many conversations with those guys, like about half uh, in the dorms were pastor bound, half were PhD bound. And there was this dilemma, especially for those who were moving toward the pastorate route, uh, of how do I bridge the gap between the there and then and the here and now? And, and, and it, it, for us as Catholics, that's exactly what the liturgy does. That's exactly what the sacraments do. The sacraments make salvation history present. They are our entrance to the story. And that's really where time in the liturgy, time and eternity kiss. Um, and you only really see that, again, when you've you've gone through, you've, you've studied the Old Testament, but you've studied it in terms of where it's going, you're not just getting you know locked in the past. You see this part of the story and you see where it's heading and you see the Passover, the original Passover. But then as it's celebrated as a memorial, as a zikaron in Hebrew and Greek, anamnesis, uh, and this, this movement of memory, of making present, but also expectation. And then you realize when you get to the new that the cross, I mean, how is the cross a sacrifice? If all you saw was the crucifixion of our Lord, you'd say this is a Roman execution. It's a sacrifice because of the Last Supper. It's a sacrifice because Jesus is the new Passover lamb. And that, that line you're quoting from the ordinary, I, I didn't even know that. I've never been to an ordinary mass, so thanks for sharing. You know, from 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul says, Christ is our Paschal lamb, therefore let's keep the feast. Like it's not done until we consume the lamb. And, and just like in ancient Israel, you couldn't have eaten just a bunch of lamb cookies or just said, hey, I'm just going to have a spiritual communion. Like that'd be nice. But you had to consume the lamb to complete the sacrifice. Uh, and that's also true of the ancient Todah sacrifice, the thank offering. That's the one sacrifice where the worshiper eats the sacrifice. And not to go too far afield, but Todah, if you translate that into Greek, that's Eucharistia, Thanksgiving. And so it's like, how did the name Eucharist become the name for what happened at the Last Supper. And one thing you can see is the Passover. So the way the Todah typically would operate is you'd have someone who was suffering. They'd cry out. They'd be delivered. And after they're delivered, later on, they would remember and they'd give thanks. And if you look at the Passover, 
The Passover celebrated after the initial one has all the earmarks of a corporate todah because you, you look back, they were suffering, they cried out, and now they remember and give thanks and praise. And so the Eucharist brings in this todah and Passover element, and that's why we consume the lamb. That's why it's a thank offering. It's the Passover, and we give thanks and praise. This is, and when you read in like Hebrews, the sacrifice of praise, that's todah language. That's the thank offering language. That's Eucharistic. Oh, that is awesome. So let's talk more about the book specifically. I remember one time I was talking with Jeff over breakfast when he had come to my parish and I love doing everything and anything with Jeff Cavins because he is so personal and he just gets right to it. And so, um, him and his wife were down here and, uh, they took me out to breakfast one morning and we were there for like two and a half hours just talking. And I said, I go, so Jeff, I got some beef with the Bible timeline. And he's like, okay, what's that? And I, yeah. <laughs> I was like, well, so you give us the great narrative arc. But one day I was I was listening to this Jewish um, rabbi, and he was talking about Leviticus. Because the running joke is, right, every Catholic wants to do the Bible in a year. And then they get to like month two where you get into Leviticus, and you're like, this is boring. What is this? This is weird. Yep. Yep. Uh, all these laws. And uh, but this Jewish rabbi said every, every Jewish boy would have um, their introduction to the Torah uh, on top of the narratives that their parents told them of the great stories was the book of Leviticus because they needed to know how to live their faith, right? More has got the dot. And that whole notion of Jews don't have creeds, they have feasts, right? And that's what's the great teacher of the faith. Deeds, not creeds. And so, but the, the funny thing was, I was like, I really understood what obviously the great narrative arc when you understand the Old Testament, but reading Leviticus, which was so boring, right? I got super excited because I finally was reading through like how they understood the sacrifices, right? When an animal dies, you know, you talk about for atonement, right? Or a ransom. And then when you talk about the, the cereal offerings, it talks about for a memorial, right? And Christ is both of those and all this stuff. And so we were just talking and he was like, well, that's why we need to study the whole Old Testament and not just, you know, the 14 historical books or whatever. And so this is so great. So how was the book set up just for people who are going to wait till springtime to do their pre-ordering? How is the book set up? How did you guys lay it out? Yeah, well, one, Jeff is amazing. I mean, he's, he's an amazing teacher. He's an amazing right. scholar of the Bible and he's hilarious too at the same time. So you get the total package with Jeff. I, I have not seen anybody who can deadpan as well as Jeff Cavins. He's amazing. Um, you, know, I, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, yeah, he, he's yeah. awesome. Um, you know, this. what's what's interesting is, so this is, this is so great. Um, if you look at the, the Exodus, we talked about this earlier as, as sort of the paradigm of salvation. And, and, and this comes out in, the, in, in Jewish expectation and the prophets in the New Testament and for the entire church's tradition. And you think about even like John of the Cross, the, the, the spiritual doctors of, our, of, of, of the church, the Exodus is so important. It's the, it's the paradigm. It's the spiritual reading of it. Here's the mistake we often make. We think the Exodus is simply about political liberation. And it is that, no doubt. But like you look at the first question Moses brings to Pharaoh, the first request is, can we go a three-day journey into the, into the wilderness to sacrifice? Um, and it's when Pharaoh says no that the exodus becomes you know, a political deliverance. Uh, but really the exodus terminates not simply in political liberation, but in worship, in liturgy. That, that's really where the whole book is moving. And, and what a number of people have actually seen is, you know, contrary to expectations, Leviticus is actually the very heart of the Pentateuch. 
when you get to the tabernacle, it's really kind of a continuation of Sinai. So God's presence on Sinai will continue to go with his people in the tabernacle. And you look at the sacrifices, and again, I, I, I know what you mean about getting bogged down in Leviticus, but the heart of sacrifice really is uh, a, a ritualized self-offering. Like the Olah, the burnt offering, the Olah, it's, it's, it's from this verb Allah, which means to ascend, to go up. The whole thing is taken up. And the reason Christ's sacrifice is perfect is because you have this perfect union of priest and victim, of offerer and what is offered. And so when you kind of dig into what's happening here and, and you get into the, even the, the, the feasts, there's so many connections to the new covenant to Christ's offering. I mean, even if you just, let's just take off, man, through the, 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 the sacrifice real quick. So you get the Ola, the burnt offering. That really signals this, to, this call to total self-gift, this ritualized self-offering. The second one, the Mircha, the, the, the grain offering, it's important to realize there are unbloody sacrifices, right? It's not all just blood and animals. And then you have the peace offering, which is a communion offering, the shalamim, you can hear shalom in that. And the chief peace offering is the todah, the thank offering. And those three sacrifices really are sacrifices that express communion with God. And then you also have the sin offering and the guilt offering, the chatath and the asham. And those are sacrifices that restore communion with God after it's been broken. And that becomes really pronounced after the golden calf. That's where you get this massive uptick in sacrifices. Think about the new covenant. Think about Christ's offering. You think about his total self-offering on the cross. The cross is, is yes, it's atonement, but it's also a revelation of God's love in this total self-gift on our behalf and for us. And we're called to kind of enter into this. The, the grain offering, what is the mass, the Eucharist? It's the unbloody it's the same sacrifice on the cross but in an unbloody manner in an unbloody mode the thank offering we've already talked about that but also the atoning the the sin and the and the and the guilt offering uh christ you know the catechism in 654 talks about the twofold aspect of the paschal mystery that by his death he atones for sin by his re- resurrection he infuses us with divine life and so you you see this movement and then you know i i don't want to bore all your listeners here but i mean like you get into the heart of the tap and you get like the bread of the presence uh, our, our friend Brandon Petrie has done so much to bring this to light. I mean, the, the you have so go go to Mount Sinai. You have the sacrifice in Exodus twenty four. Moses says the blood of the covenant. Words our Lord picks up verbatim, uh, and then it culminates in this this communion meal on the top of Sinai in God's presence. This messianic banquet is is how this hope develops, and that's actually kind of continued in the bread of the presence which is actually the bread and the wine of the presence that the priest would eat every Sabbath. And that's like a, a commemoration, an ongoing making present of that original banquet meal on the top of Sinai. It's like, well, that's what the Eucharist is, right? So I think when you read it with new covenant eyes, when you read it with where it's going, it really starts to come alive. If you don't, it's going to be boring. It's going to be completely sterile. But if you read it in light of Christ, and that's how the church has always read the entire Bible, Leviticus actually can be just I open it. Let me just one last thing, like the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, a fall feast that celebrates God's kind of provision of the Israelites in the wilderness, but also his dwelling with them in the tabernacle and the temple. And it really signifies the joy of heaven. There's some great lines from some of the church fathers that sees, sees the, the tabernacle, the Feast of Tabernacles is fulfilled really in the Feast of Christmas, God's dwelling with us, the incarnation, but also the parousia when God will be all in all. So, uh, my encouragement to everybody is to read the entire Bible, the Old Testament, in light of Christ risen and crucified, uh, in light of our lives today, 
uh, as Catholic Christians, and, and the whole thing will really come to life, and you'll see why is it that the scriptures are the soul of all of theology. That's awesome. That's awesome. So what do you want, uh, do you guys have specifically in writing, like how did you two team up and do this? Because I'd imagine, yeah. you know, you're trying to keep this for a, a general Catholic audience, but at the same time, like you two can nerd out on this stuff so <laughs> deep. How did you really, how did you restrain yourself? How did you write this book? <laughs> yeah, I, I say it, it, it cuts the, the different, I mean, so it, it, it's a book, it's a book that I would happily use in my college classes. Um, but it's not o mm. overwhelming in terms of like, like, like sometimes like a study Bible can be overwhelming in terms of details and things like that. So, so every book of the old Testament, uh, and, and we, we divided things up and, and, you know, and kind of talked amongst ourselves, there's intro, like introductory aspects of like, okay, so who's the author about when was it written? What are the major themes? Uh, and then we also have, you know, how is it used in the liturgy? How is it used in the tradition? Right. So this whole notion of like, you know, how can we dig into like the there and then, but how has the meaning of this book been received mm. in the church's life, liturgy, tradition, et cetera. And then they're kind of like a walkthrough of each book. So you could read, you could read the book cover to cover, but you could also, if you're doing like, I need a primer on Genesis, I need a primer on Isaiah, I need a primer on Jeremiah. Um, so book by book, kind of an, an intro that is, is substantive to give you the, let's say this, like, uh, so you get all those essays in the Great Adventure Bible. Those are helpful. Uh, it gives you yep. the, the lay of the land. This will take you further, like much deeper, in you know, book by book, but not in a way that's like so overwhelming. It's like, oh, this is so technical, so dry. I mean, so we really want to kind of pull out, kind of empower you to kind of read the Bible for yourself, but but also really kind of what are the things the tradition has really seen here that makes this book so precious, whether it's Leviticus, whether it's the Psalms, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zephaniah, Obadiah, all of them, right? They all show up there. They all get their own, their own entries uh, to kind of, you know, help us be confident and excited Bible readers. That's awesome. All right. We're going to take a brief break right now. Throw it to our fine folks over here at Ascension. Uh, just want to send out a quick reminder. Text 33777. You're going to text the phrase EKSB to 33777. That gets you on the mailing list because we're a seasonal show. We do a lot of our batch interviews and then our recordings and all this stuff. So we want to keep you informed as to when the new shows and the new um, different topics that we cover are released. So that, again, is text EKSB to 33777 and hop on our mailing list. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Father Mark Toops. Do you ever feel like you're asking God for too much in your spiritual life? The truth is you're probably asking for too little. And if you'd like some help this Lent, opening up your heart to God to allow Him to bless you with all that He has for you, you should pick up the new Ascension Lenten Companion Year A. This coming Lent, if you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you always got. If you'd like some help to go deeper, you'll need to ask for more. And this is what this year's journal is designed to help you with. Each day, you'll get a word to focus on, a reflection to help you pray, some scripture to meditate on, and a prompt to help you quiet down and listen to what God wants to say to you. And each week, we feature a piece of original artwork as well as an original online video to help you in your prayer. I want to encourage you to be bold this Lent, to ask God for more. Go to ascensionpress.com and order your copy of the Ascension Lenten Companion today. God bless you.
Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Every Knee Shall Bow. I am here with Dr. Andrew Swafford. We're talking about his new book that he co-authored with Jeff Cavins. Pre-orders in springtime. Uh, it is called A Catholic Guide to the Old Testament. It is going to help give you a proper understanding of not just the Old Testament books in terms of the sacred authors that wrote them and their time and all that stuff, but also how it's been taken up in the great tradition of the church and our liturgy and praying. It is. Uh, I, I am excited about this book because we all know that Catholics need to know the Old Testament better in order to understand who and what we are. And along those lines, my nickname comes from the prostitute wife of the prophet Hosea, of, the, of minor prophets and their prostitute wives. And uh, I love telling the story when I introduce, uh, like I'm with youth ministry kids, right? And they all call me uh, Mr. Gomer, uh, which is weird. But um, to have the kids, like when I tell the story, I, I walk them through the book of Hosea and I try to demonstrate to them like, this is the radical nature of God's love for you. That even when you return to this this life of prostitution, of of of, of adultery, of of walking away from God, He pursues you and buys you back, right? Redemption, right? So uh, let me ask you: uh, You got any uh, fun stories that we can talk about? Uh, the old uh, minor prophet Hosea. <laughs> Hosea, you know, I, I, it's great to hear you say that too, because I, I think the hardest thing to believe about the faith, about the Catholic faith, more than the Trinity, more than sexual teachings, is to really believe that God loves us and loves us that much. The eternal creator of the cosmos cares that much about this speck of matter, but that that's the gospel. That's the gospel, nothing short of it. Yeah, Hosea is, I mean, awesome for a number of reasons. I mean, one, you know, we mentioned um, like our book, it, it, it goes through each book of the Bible, but also uh, how does the liturgy use, the tradition use, but also how does the New Testament use this book, right? So you think about things like, I desire mercy and not sacrifice that our Lord, he's quoting from Hosea. You think about uh, St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 about, oh, death, where is thy sting? That comes from Hosea 13. Uh, he's drawing off of it. But then you've got this magnificent opening, Hosea, of, you know, uh, this, you know, really this Gomer, <laughs> your nickname, um, <laughs> as sort of this unfaithful uh, adulterous wife as sort of embodying the people of God, uh, that Israel is called to be a, a spouse of the Lord. And, and that nuptial marriage really happens at Mount Sinai. And then beginning with the golden calf and thereafter is this kind of continue falling away. And that's not just Israel. That's, that's us. That's us. And then Hosea, this kind of unconditional love of this woman who has been unfaithful to him. That's our Lord. That's our Lord who never, never stops. And there's a great line in like Hosea 2, I think about verse 12, where it says like, I will go out in the wilderness and I will allure you. I will draw you back. And it's like betrothal. And again, when you get to John the Baptist in the wilderness, who's the friend of the bridegroom, right? John 3.30, right? So all of this is coming to fruition in Christ, who is the divine bridegroom. But you don't fully see this and appreciate this unless you've gone through Hosea and you see this kind of unrelenting, unconditional, undying love of our Lord that pursues us again and again and again. Yeah. I love when you read chapter one where he says, take, take to yourself a wife of harlotry, right? <laughs> and he goes and he marries this woman. And the first kid is explicitly described as his. But the next set of kids are not, right? There's ambiguity in the text of like, right. oh, oh, you might be raising someone else's kids, right? She might have returned back. And then he goes in, in chapter three, yeah. she has returned to her former way of life. And he has to go, and, and God says, go, uh, go to your wife who's returned to her harlotry and, buy, and go buy her back. And, uh, and he said, and pursue her 
with the love that I have for Israel. Like he explicitly says, like basically your love for this woman is like my love for Israel, but as a pale comparison. And I remember when I teach that to Catholics, right. Or, or in my inclusion class, you just sit there and, and, and you hear, like you put yourself in the scenario of a man who is going through the, the worst part of town where the prostitutes are sold. Right. And here's this man of God doing this stuff. And he's found amongst sinners and prostitutes. And there he has to pay for his own wife. Right. He has to pay for, and, you know, uh, this measure of grain and the, the silver and all this stuff. Yeah. And like, I, I just love the idea of this meditation that someone did where it's like, no, 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 you, you, that's my wife. And it's like, I don't care who she is to you. To me, she's 20 pieces of silver and a, and a measure of barley. Like, that's what it takes. And he pays the price in order to redeem her love back. Right. And you think of these things and then you put that in the context of God pursuing Israel in Christ Jesus. Right. He paid. No, no, this is my bride. This is my, this is my bride, but he still pays the price to purchase her back. And, and it's this beautiful story of redemption. Uh, yeah, that, that I just love. And I wish people knew it more. Yeah. And that, that's what redemption means, right? Redemption means to buy back. Redemption implies right. that one was previously in bondage, right? This is why the, again, back to the Exodus. I mean, Pharaoh stands as an image of Satan, right? We, we, just as Israel is in bondage to Pharaoh, we too are in bondage to the evil one and Christ redeems us. He buys us back. Um, so redemption has a distinct kind of connotation, biblically speaking. We need a savior. Yeah, that's awesome. All right. Well, we are coming up here at the end of the show. So I just wanted to throw out where can people, people want to get more of your stuff, access more of your stuff. Uh, where can people find you online? Yeah. So, well, I'm, I'm on Twitter, uh, Andrew uh, underscore Swafford. Uh, my wife and I, uh, so my, my better half, and you know my better half very well, Sarah, uh, we have a website, uh, theswafords.com, theswafords.com. So we've got uh, books and resources available there. That's, that's, I guess that's probably about it. But uh, yeah, we loved, uh, love to minister together a lot to our college students here at BC. We love speaking together, uh, just kind of you know, being a, you know, it's great to, as you know, I mean, it's great to be among fellow peers and scholars and things like that, but man, it's just so great to share the newness and freshness of the gospel and the scriptures with people who are encountering for the first time or just going deeper and just walking with them. So um, I'm just, I'm just trying to be the donkey upon which our Lord rides to Jerusalem and not get in his way. (laughs) That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. And I do highly recommend everyone to head on over to Ascension Press and check out your um, Bible study on Romans. Whenever uh, we were talking about doing interviews, I, the very first thing I said was, hey, can I get access to uh, the Romans course real quick? Because I, I just kind of want to review it. And they're like, sure. And I'm like, yes, yes. So uh, your courses that you have, the things that you are doing with Ascension has just been incredible. I have the uh, the Great Adventure Bible right here. This is the only Bible I use now. It is awesome. So uh, kudos to you and all the good work that you and Jeff and everyone else is doing. Yeah, thanks so much, Gomer. God bless you all, and, and and thank you for all you're doing, man. This is awesome. Thank you very much, and God bless. <laughs>